Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're looking at Algernon Blackwood's tale of cosmic horror, The Willows. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? Well, you tell us, Scott, you're running games online for Ain't Slayed Nobody, is this correct? Yes. So, well, I've been doing quite a lot of stuff with Ain't Slayed Nobody, but recently we started recording a brief campaign spun out from my scenario from World War Cthulhu London called The Meat Trade. This is something I haven't run for a group online. In fact, I don't think I've actually recorded any World War Cthulhu stuff with anyone before, so this is a first. We're only a few episodes into it, but Cup obviously is doing his usual high production on it and is taking a bit of time to get everything together. So I believe that the first episode will be out around the same time as this episode, give or take. Certainly, if you want to get a jump on it, take a look at the Enslaved Nobody Patreon and you'll get access to it there. Well, we're approaching that midpoint of the year, June when issue seven of our Blasphemous Tome fanzine will be next due out. God, time flies. It doesn't feel like it was a couple of days ago since we were working on issue six. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, this is the fanzine that we produce for all our Patreon backers. We've juggled things around recently, so depending on the tier that you're backing us at, you'll get a PDF, you'll get a voucher for a print-on-demand copy, or you will get a copy printed at Paul's local printer in Buckingham and signed by us and stuck in the post and covered with our love. The fanzine is licensed by Chaosium, and this next issue will feature a scenario, a brand new Call of Cthulhu scenario, by Mr. Matthew Sanderson. Indeed. <laughs> I'm going to keep it vague. Watch this space for details. Okay. <laughs> and we also welcome submissions from listeners. So if anybody has pieces of artwork, or you wish to write an interesting article up to around 500 words then please do contact us and you can make submissions to Scott. The email address is submissions at blasphemoustomes.com. Alternatively, get in contact with us on social media and we can sort something out there. And now on to our main topic, The Willows. Outen and Blackwood's The Willows was first published back in 1907 in the collection The Listener and Other Stories. As we'll dig into a bit, it was a major influence on the young H.P. Lovecraft and possibly helped shape his vision of alien forces intruding upon our world. This is a somewhat different kind of story than Lovecraft might have written, though, because it deals much more with unknown menaces and draws upon mythology, landscape, ghost stories. And it is possibly the, I don't want to say the first work of cosmic horror, but certainly one of the earliest ones. So Algernon Blackwood was an English horror writer, broadcaster and occultist. He was born in Greater London in 1869 and grew up in Kent. His early adulthood was spent travelling across Canada and the USA doing a variety of odd jobs. He eventually settled back in England in his early 30s and turned to writing. 
Like a number of his contemporaries, Blackwood was a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Hey, he was a buddy of Crowley. I wouldn't go that far, but yes. <laughs> oh, they shared the same room together, at least. <laughs> his interest in the mystical seeped into his fiction, particularly in his tales about the occult detective John Silence. Now, there's a name of an NPC for you. Hmm. Yes, he wasn't the first occult detective, I don't think, but he would have been a contemporary of characters like Karnaki the Ghostfinder. Blackwood was a keen outdoorsman, which informed the settings of a number of his stories, including The Willows and The Wendigo. Yeah, we'll see a lot of that in The Willows, I think. His work, which often encompassed weirder ideas than traditional English ghost stories, influenced his contemporaries, so including Arthur Macon and the young H.P. Lovecraft who was quite the admirer of Blackwood's work. Indeed, to the point where in his essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature, Lovecraft stated, Of the quality of Mr Blackwood's genius there can be no dispute, for no one has ever approached the skill, seriousness and minute fidelity with which he records the overtones of strangeness in ordinary things and experiences. He is the one absolute and unquestioned master of weird atmosphere. Although Lovecraft did have some complaints that he voiced alongside that praise. He says, A fault of his more serious efforts is that diffuseness and long-windedness which results from an excessively elaborate attempt under the handicap of a somewhat bold and journalistic style devoid of intrinsic magic, colour and vitality to visualise precise sensations and nuances of uncanny suggestion. This coming from a guy who just wrote a sentence that's four lines long. Is he saying it's a bit dull sometimes? He says it's long-winded, boring trash, which, by God, it fucking was. <laughs> it was awful. I think what Lovecraft was saying was that it didn't have enough adjectives. <laughs> the other complaint that Lovecraft made in Supernatural Horror Literature wasn't directed towards this story, but it was that he didn't like Blackwood's occultism. He didn't like the fact that in a number of his stories, like the John Silent stories, he took occultism seriously, which obviously Lovecraft didn't. So while he used things like magical tomes and the trappings of magic in his stories, as we've said in the occult episodes, Lovecraft was very much a rationalist. And seeing someone who actually believed this stuff writing about it, I think rubbed him up the wrong way. Yeah, because that doesn't really come across to me in The Willows or no. The Wendigo, I don't think. No, it comes across more in some of his other stories, like oh, okay. the John Silent stories, but not in these yeah. ones. For all that, Lovecraft said of The Willows, Here art and restraint in narrative reach their very highest development, and an impression of lasting poignancy is produced without a single strained passage or a single false note. I think his first criticism actually held more in uh <laughs> oh, more in relation to the willows than that statement did but i can see why he liked it <laughs> blackwood however was not a fan of lovecraft burn stating <laughs> that his work lacked a spiritual terror that blackwood considered vital oh, that's interesting yeah because i'd heard lovecraft talk about blackwood but i hadn't appreciated it the other way around yeah yeah well i guess that's is sort of the flip side of Lovecraft complaining about Blackwood taking all this occult stuff seriously, that if Blackwood saw in Lovecraft's writing the converse of that, that he didn't have these occult aspects, then, yeah, I can see why that would have put the division between them. After a lifetime of prolific writing, Blackwood died in Kent in 1951 
at the age of 82. So he outlived Lovecraft by some years. And now let's take a look at The Willows. Our narrator is canoeing down the flooded Danube between Vienna and Budapest with his friend, the Swede. Gotta love a character that's only ever described by their nationality, that they don't have a name, they just have a docked designation. Through a region of singular loneliness and desolation filled with willow-grown islands. Okay, let's get this out of the way. Where is Mr. Toad? <laughs> He's having fun elsewhere because there sure as hell ain't any to be had in this. I read the whole damn thing. He didn't turn up. There was no <laughs> Mr. Rat. What's going on? Well, there was Mr. Otter. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was Mr. Otter. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't fit. <laughs> Weirdly, it's like this was published a year before Wind in the Willows. Huh. I don't know why that's weird. It's just a weird synchronicity. And has nobody done a matter? I mean, I guess the, the, the Willows <laughs> isn't that popular of a book, perhaps. I don't know how popular it was back at the time. But nobody's done a sort of pastiche mashup of the Willows meets Wind in the Willows. Or maybe they have. Anyway, just an aside. But anyway, back to the story properly. Stop being silly, Fricker. <laughs> These Willows aren't full trees. Supple as grasses and so continually shifting they somehow give the impression that the entire plane is moving and alive. Our protagonists land on an island with some difficulty because the river is moving damn fast with the flood, and they make camp there. They've been warned against this journey by one of the locals they spoke to earlier, a Hungarian officer, who told them, you may find yourselves when the flood subsides 40 miles from anywhere. There are no people, no farms, no fishermen. The narrator explores, marvelling at the willows that surround the island, like a herd of monstrous antediluvian creatures crowding down to drink. He experiences a curious feeling of disquietude, almost of alarm. I was aware, somehow, that it had to do with my realisation of our utter insignificance before this unrestrained power of the elements about me. He feels that they have trespassed here upon the borders of an alien world. And yeah, I can kind of see this. Mm. Desolate's probably the wrong word. I mean, it's full of life, but it's like just willow trees. So it's kind of monotonous landscape with water and floods. Yeah, isolated, dangerous and yeah. completely outside the experience that they would have had elsewhere. With the river eroding the island quickly about them, the travellers drag the canoe nearer to their tent. While doing that, they spot what appears to be a body in the water, but which they realise quickly is actually just a playful otter. Or is it? That is a bloody big otter. Yeah, well, we'll yeah. come to that again later. I mean, I've seen sea otters, and they are massive, yeah. right? I mean, they are like... How long they are, but they're like four or five foot long, aren't mm. they? They're massive, they're really big. River otters aren't, they're about the size of cats, I think. Mm -hmm. But I guess with the monotony of this landscape, judging distance is perhaps tricky and deceptive. So I guess mm. that's the way I rationalized it to myself. But it does become a plot point later on, mm, for sure. Rationalizing a few things later, I think there would be a very different description if the guy put on any glasses. <laughs> They also see a man in a boat, gesticulating and making the sign of the cross. They laugh this off, deciding the locals are scared of fairies and elementals, possibly demons too. So this 
sort of feeds into what Lovecraft said in Supernatural Horror and Literature about the cosmic horror elements of writers like Yeats and mythology and folklore sort of feeding into all this. It did make me think about how The Willows kind of works as fairy folklore as much as it does in cosmic horror. The classic fairy tales, certainly the Celtic fairy tales and the English fairy tales, a lot of the older ones before the Victorians came along and sanitized them all are very much to do with these hidden people and hidden worlds that run parallel to ours, where time runs differently and they run by different rules. And if you stumble across fairyland or end up being enticed to cross the border there, then this can be a hideous thing. You can be enslaved or just plain mm. eaten. These fairies are incomprehensible, capricious, monstrous things, vastly more powerful than we are. And so, in these respects, I think The Willows works as much as a, a fairy story as it does as a cosmic horror one, which makes me wonder how much of cosmic horror really comes out of fairy folklore. The two men chat into the evening. It was like talking out loud in church, or in some place where it was not lawful, perhaps not quite safe to be overheard. The narrator imagines the willows being from another plane of life, another evolution altogether. They move even when there's no wind gathering as if to attack the two men and their tent. He really kind of personifies these willows. They seem to be sort of taking over in his mind. Well, it's not just the willows, it's the entire landscape. That mention earlier of elementals, that this also works as a tale of elemental forces, that this is the dark side maybe of nature. But, you know, as we'll see later, it's certainly beyond nature. It's very much literally supernatural. But a lot of it is conveyed through the forces of nature, through the wind and the rain and the river and, of course, these willows. Waking suddenly that night, the narrator leaves the tent, spying monstrous shapes amongst the wind-shaken willows. Immense, bronze-coloured, moving and wholly independent of the swaying of the branches, they were very much larger than human, and indeed that something in their appearance proclaimed them to be not human at all. I saw their limbs and huge bodies melting in and out of each other, forming this serpentine line that bent and swayed and twisted spirally with the contortions of the wind-tossed trees. They were nude, fluid shapes, rising up in a living column into the heavens. I'll give him one thing. I can certainly read his stuff a hell of a lot easier than Lovecraft's, but it seems very long-winded. Hmm. That passage... I certainly took away that sense of awe that he was trying to build with it, but at the same time, I couldn't really imagine it. I couldn't really quite picture what it was. And I think that actually worked quite well for the sake of the story, in that it was something that it seemed like I should be able to picture, but the bits just didn't quite come together, that it just seemed to be so weird and so out of it that I couldn't quite make it work. I think one of the lines in there kind of exemplifies that quite nicely, where it's he's describing forming this serpentine line that bent and swayed and twisted spirally with the contortions of the wind-tossed trees. He's describing how the thing moves, but not describing what it is. Yeah. It's kind of a psychedelic ent mood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
interestingly enough, I did read a few essays about the Willows when I was preparing for this, and a number of people did compare this to Tolkien and some of Tolkien's mm. darker representation of trees and the Willows in Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. Yeah, that's what did occur to me. This yeah, Once you sort of start giving uh, trees a personality, then it's hard not to, to go there. Filled with awe, the narrator feels an impulse to fall before them and worship. A gust of wind bowls him over, shaking him out of it. The vast figures have vanished. Have they ascended or were they just a hallucination? I'm going to go with the latter. So the narrator at this stage is seized by this sense of religious awe. He feels this impulse to worship when he sees these vast inhuman figures. We talked in the Cosmic Horror episode about this being a very sort of humid reaction to encountering things greater than ourselves and incomprehensible. Is this something that we make use of ourselves in our games, this idea of religious awe, perhaps as the reaction at a bout of madness? I think it's a very careful line to tread, to be honest. I can see how you could justify it, but the issue or problem that I have with it is that if you haven't specified in, let's say you're, you're running a game as a convention game, if you haven't specified what religion the PC has, and then you just say, oh, well, it's this aspect of God or it's this aspect of whatever deity. Mm. You're kind of making a veiled statement. Well, this is the religion you're obviously being because this is the right religion. Mm. It has the potential to rub people up the wrong way, which is why I very much steer away from it. Oh, I disagree with that completely. I can see it working in fiction, but I wouldn't want to do it at the game table. In fact, I try and avoid religion in most aspects in gaming like oh, that gosh. anyway as a kind of yeah. way of saying, well, this is the right way because there is no one right way in my opinion. So do you feel like you'd be saying to the person that perhaps they, in their head, they feel their their character has a certain religion, like you know they're Muslim, mm. they're Christian, whatever they, they might be, and that mm. by saying that this thing is worthy of worship, you'd be imposing that iconography onto their religion is that what you're sort of saying yes i don't want to rub the player up the wrong way by making an assumption that oh you're christian you're muslim you're whatever off a fear of getting it wrong if they've incorporated that into their own idea about the character and right. it's that worry that i don't want to piss someone off because i feel that could be a very contentious issue so i'd mm. rather just avoid mm. the issue entirely we'll say fine in fiction but in a game no i would disagree with that absolutely because I think when you're talking about Call of Cthulhu, cosmic horror, just this encounter with something that is so much greater than ourselves and the sense of awe that it brings up, that I don't think that ties in with any particular religion, that it is an involuntary impulse, the same way as screaming or nausea or fainting might be, that you see this thing and regardless of what your own religious beliefs are, that your impulse is just to fall before it. And yeah, I mean, I have used that in games. I've sort of said to players that your character in their bat of madness suddenly sees what you're looking at as being yeah, something divine, something just impossible, something that is worthy of worship. Where do you want to take this? I mean, is there a halfway house to satisfy both? If the character's suffering a bout of madness, you can say to the player, does your character think this might be a manifestation of some divine entity that has come to speak to them? And then it kind of puts it in the player's hands for them to sort of reject that or to totally accept it. And then it's kind of, 
down to them how they interpret it and you can kind of gauge their reaction if they say oh no 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 then you can kind of build up this kind of the antithesis of that perhaps if i was going to go down that route i would probably err on the pool side of the suggestion there i can definitely say something has been awe-inspiring but i would take it out of a religious context Hmm. i don't think you can take awe-inspiring out of a religious context that is inherently religious by a strict definition but i don't think it is you can be awed by the universe can't you yeah but i think Taking the inherently human religious spiritual aspect out of cosmic horror is taking the most striking colour out of the palette of cosmic horror, that by denying yourself that, you're denying yourself the most important vital human part of what cosmic horror is. So which is the most important vital part? That sense of awe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because with other types of horror, when we're talking about body horror or ghosts or folk horror or survival horror, all the other kinds of horror we've talked about, they're things that inspire fear. But cosmic horror is unique in that it inspires awe. Yeah, but that's separate to religion is what we're saying. I don't think it is. I think religion is born of awe, that it is the same fundamental impulse. And to try to divorce it completely from religion is to remove the most useful tool we have for describing what that impulse is and where it leads. That fundamentally is the basis of why we have cults and religions and Call of Cthulhu, because of that sense of awe. If we say that that doesn't happen, we've just undermined pretty much the entire basis of the game. In my mind, I think they're just two very different things. We're both taking the same term and having two very different views on what it means. Well, let's get pulled back into the story, otherwise <laughs> we'll lose our directions, just as uh, the characters in the story did. Now, later, the narrator is woken by multitudinous little patterings and these aren't the pitter patter of tiny feet well they might be mm. but not in a good way <laughs> something heavy is pressing on the tent which he fears is a bough from a nearby tree yeah that would worry me if you're in a tent and there's something pressing down on it yeah. it's just a bit of canvas that's not much protection even if it's just a cow you know yeah you don't want that no get crushed but moving on oh carry on like that and we're going to have a beef <laughs> clambering out of the tent the narrator finds however that it's not raining and that there is nothing visible pushing on the tent he also believes that the willow bushes have moved closer to the tent and he thinks that he might be imagining this but then he worries that even if he's imagining it is that going to be any better because it will be through our minds and not through our physical bodies that the attack would come i'm having the vision now of some very anemic or very emaciated dark young that don't appear as big <laughs> thick bodied of trees that it's these little very bush-like willows i have written something a bit like that <laughs> The following morning, the narrator is surprised when the Swede implies that they might stay another night. Hmm, he's a glutton for punishment, if ever there was one. Suggesting that they can only leave if they'll let us. The Swede is not saying this because he thinks it's a good idea. This isn't him saying, this is a jolly place, let's stay for a day longer. This is him saying, we're trapped. Yeah, because he points out that the steering paddle has vanished and there is a tear in the bottom of the canoe that might have caused the two men to drown and attempt to prepare a victim for the sacrifice. Two victims, rather. 
It's like, well, is the Swede sabotaged the mm. canoe? In his, has he gone mad? They probably tore it, pulling it up onto the shore. Well, he does address that, doesn't he? He does. Having been sailing and having used those kind of boats, it is very easy to wreck the bottom of a hull like that. It's not this sudden, oh, how the hell did this happen? No, it, it can happen very easily. Mm. The narrator searches for a rational explanation for all these things. He's alarmed by the change that has come over the normally unimaginative Swede. I love the fact that he describes him as unimaginative, as a positive quality. As he looks around the camp, he finds these strange funnel-shaped indentations in the sand, which the Swede has spotted before, and the narrator looking for a rationale for it, says, well, you've seen little whirlwinds form around the streets. I mean, it's clearly caused by those. <laughs> Bullshit. I've seen this happen in a number of games. I've done it in games where you're trying to play a character who is desperately rational and initially is just poo-pooing all the evidence of the weird shit that's going on and so on. Does that do you think, add to or detract from a game when it happens? Is it just forestalling the inevitable or is it adding something to play? I think with everything, in moderation is the key here. I like a little bit of spice, you throw it in here and there, then it gives a counterpoint. It's that kind of thing. Well, is it a deep one that we found a footprint for here in the sand or is it a guy with flippers that's kind of come out here? Providing that is it this? Is it that? That degree of uncertainty until the final reveal? That can add something. But if you're constantly doing it, boy, does it become bloody tedious. Yeah, I guess it can be overdone. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting here that he comments on the Swede being unimaginative, but it's kind of the narrator's imagination that is his worst enemy, really. Mm. I thought that was a really interesting uh, line earlier where he talks about through our minds and not through our physical bodies yes. that the attack would come. And it's like, well, how does he know that? Yeah. But also, you know, the way that he finds a rationalisation for everything and later on he keeps doing it and the Swede picks him up on is constant rationalisation of things. But it's like he knows that he's rationalising stuff, yeah. but he can't help himself. Yeah, there is something of a folie deux going on here. Do you remember, it's not in the new edition of Call of Cthulhu, but there used to be madness effects in some of the earlier editions, which were terms that were taken from Don Quixote, Quixotism or Quixoteism, however you want to pronounce it, and Panzaism. Quixotism is sort of seeing the marvellous and the unnatural in everything. It's over-credulity, and Panzaism is the opposite of that. It's the complete denial of the weird when you encounter it. Mm. I do sort of miss those, because they did add some weird dynamics when they came into play. Well, I guess as a result of Bouts of Madness, you can bring those in if you mm. wish. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The Swede doubts that they saw an otter that night. It seemed too large and unafraid. The narrator explains that this is the magnifying effect of the sunset on the water. Yeah, there's your rationalisation for you. Yeah, I don't really get that either. <laughs> And I think that's the point, that at this stage yeah. he is just grasping for straws so desperately that his explanations yeah. are becoming less and less convincing even to himself, well, especially to himself. The two men argue, although the narrator suspects the Swede is right, the Swede warns we are wiser not to talk about it, or even to think about it, because what one thinks finds expression in words, and what one says happens. I think Yoda got it better when he just said, there is no try, there is only do. But I think that is 
quite a frightening thought to come up with in the midst of all this, that even thinking about the bad things that are happening is going to make them worse. Now, whether the Swede is being completely deluded or superstitious here, or whether he is tapped into something, just that thought that you can't speak about it, you can't think about it, that just paying attention to any of the strange things that's going on around might lead to your destruction is terrifying. The river erodes the island as the men fish, repair the canoe and gather firewood. All fun activities and always a reminder why I absolutely hate camping. (sighs) As the narrator cooks their evening meal, the Swede points out a strange sound. I can liken it to nothing so much as the sound of an immense gong suspended far up in the sky, repeating incessantly its muffled metallic note, soft and musical, as it was repeatedly struck. I was thinking it's emanations from the planet Gong, actually. But <laughs> Yes. Anyway, enough of that. <laughs> the Swede has heard this all day, up in the sky or under the water. Once or twice, too, I could have sworn it was not outside at all, but within myself. You know, the way a sound in the fourth dimension is supposed to come. What does that mean? What what is a sound in the fourth dimension? He kind of references this quite a lot as if we're supposed to say, oh, yeah, yeah, sounds from the fourth dimension. Yeah, I know about that. Prog rock is the fourth dimension. Anyway, when the narrator rationalizes this as the wind, the Swede points out that the wind has stopped. And moreover, it's because the wind has stopped that they can now hear it. After dinner, the Swede breaks the silence to share disquieting thoughts. In one of my favourite bits in the story, the narrator likens this to him vomiting up indigestible morsels. Yum yum. So, do we think the Swede is just completely deluded because he goes into some fairly weird stuff? Or has he gained some greater understanding of what's going on? Because... Clearly, for all the narrator is trying to rationalise stuff, there is weird shit going on. There is weird shit going on, and I think the Swede has gained some understanding of it. I don't think he completely comprehends it at all, but he's gained some insights, just like the narrator's gained some insights, although he seeks to deny them. I don't know. I'm having flashbacks here to uh, Sound of My Voice, thinking that everything here could be just the result of an unreliable narrator, that what they're saying is happening isn't actually happening. It's just through the lens of their perception Mm. what's going on, that this could all be explained away as just these two guys are out in the wilderness and have got an overactive imagination and are seeing shit that ain't there. Mm. That's the vibe I'm getting that could explain this. You could, but there are so many different phenomena and some of them, like the funnels in the sand, are things that are clear observations. If you want to believe that, you're entering into the same kind of willful rationalisation and suspension of disbelief as the narrator is, that you're just trying to explain away things that you don't like. And I think the story is altogether more complicated than that. I think particularly with the final revelation, I think the story is telling us that, no, these things did happen. Mm. It wasn't in their heads, I think. I mean, you could kind of take that with any story and say it's just in their heads. But no, I kind of thought the same, Matt, very much earlier on, but then my opinion shifted. I think what's more important with this story is the fact that they are faced with phenomena that they can't understand, they can't make sense of, and that they're trying, they're spinning it in all sorts of different ways, and the narrator rationalising stuff, the Swede perhaps going in the other direction and coming up with absolutely batshit theories about what's going on. But neither of these mean that the phenomena that they're attempting to describe and understand aren't happening. 
So the Swede says, there are things about us, I'm sure, that make for disorder, disintegration, destruction, our destruction, he said once while the fire blazed between us. We've strayed out of a safe line somewhere. The Swede also speculates that no gramophone could record the sounds they're hearing because it is a non-human sound. I mean, a sound outside humanity. From the fourth dimension. (laughs) Mm. I did find myself wondering whether this might be what influenced Lovecraft in The Whispering Darkness when he was talking about the Mego, for example, being extraterrene matter that wouldn't show up on film and so on. The idea that some things are just so alien that while the human brain can perceive them, that our instruments won't. You've also got that same setting that it starts in Whispering Darkness with the bodies being washed up down a river and here are two dudes going down a very big and powerful river. Hmm. The narrator fears they have strayed into a spot held by the dwellers in some outer space, a sort of peephole whence they could spy upon the earth, themselves unseen, a point where the veil between had worn a little thin. I think that's been picked up and used in a multitude of different ways in gaming. Mm -hmm. There have been veils between worlds, that there are places where the veil is thin. But I guess it's worth reiterating that this story was written in 1907. This is why I thought it was interesting to call back to stories about fairyland, because I think it's earliest antecedents where you get ideas like that come from fairy folklore. But looking at this in terms of science fiction or cosmic horror, whatever, this may be where that trope originates of extra dimensional beings intruding upon our dimension. I don't think outside of fairy folklore that it really kind of existed prior to this. When the narrator suggests swimming to safety, the Swede counters, we must sit tight and wait. There are forces close here that could kill a herd of elephants in a second as easily as you or I could squash a fly. Our only chance is to keep perfectly still. Our insignificance perhaps may save us. The Swede fears that they face a radical alteration, some kind of complete change, a horrible loss of oneself by substitution, something far worse than death, not even annihilation. All my life, he said, I have been strangely, vividly conscious of another region, not far removed from our own, where immense and terrible personalities hurry by, intent on vast purposes compared to which earthly affairs are all as dust in the balance. And there we have the essence of what has become Lovecraftian horror, Mm. just in that one sentence. But at the same time, the Swede could be having a psychotic break. This could be paranoid fantasies. This could be a psychotic delusion. Or if we're going back to old folklore, we've got the locals here trying to warn them about this place and warning about it in terms of folklore. While the Swede is very adamant that this has got nothing to do with any human gods or folklore or anything like that, it does really seem to be very folkloric. But it's interesting here that he says, all my life, yeah. I've been strangely conscious of another region. So it's not that they've just arrived at this island and there's freakish things there. And like with the narrator, it's freaking him out. The Swede has been always aware of this, which actually is only now that I pick up on that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, whether this means that the Swede does have some kind of psychiatric disorder that perhaps means that he is prone to psychotic delusions or whether he's just been raised in a society that has got a lot of folklore that tells him these things, and this is his interpretation. 
or that he's somehow the connection. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, that by bringing him to this place, maybe he is serving as some kind of attractor. Hmm. I don't really get anything else in the story that tells us that, but that just occurs to me that he could mm. be the kind of the conduit, if you like, yeah. I was born with a 5% Cthulhu Mythos skill, and damn it, I've been waiting all my life to finally get to roll <laughs> against it, and I fumbled. <laughs> or maybe you passed. <laughs> we'll never know. That's even worse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But yes, as I just said, whatever it is that's on this island, the Swede is adamant that it's not gods. These beings who are now about us have absolutely nothing to do with mankind. And it is mere chance that their space happens just at this spot to touch our own. Now, that is definitely cosmic horror right there. Hmm. Yeah, you've just stumbled into the wrong place. There are cosmic forces here. They're going to crush you without even realising. And there's perhaps nothing you can do about it, except just try not to think about them, because thinking about them just makes it worse. Don't think about an elephant. <laughs> yes. It's that old thing, you know. Rather than thinking about an elephant, I think it was Jasper Carrot that came to mind particularly with that image of, uh, you know, I was mentioning about the fact the unreliable narrator. Maybe it wasn't the sign of a cross that the guy was gesticulating about in the boat. I'm sure there's a sketch of his that something like, they see a guy making a sign of a cross and they take it to be he's making some kind of religious gesture. Whereas actually it's something like, take your tent down and get your shit out of here. <laughs> As it's pointing down for taking the tent out and then pointing away for them to get the hell out. Mm. It's like, you've stumbled onto an island that's going to get eroded by the river like it does every Tuesday. <laughs> escaping them requires a sacrifice insists the swede if only as a distraction discussing them even thinking about them is dangerous however our thoughts make spirals in their world we must keep them out of our minds at all costs if possible yeah so we've got that spiral motif again there as well because we had this when he saw the monstrous creatures rising up amongst the willows these inhuman entities he was describing them spiraling up to the sky and our thoughts now make spirals in their world yeah that can't be a coincidence the sound the men have heard is in the willows it's the willows themselves humming because here the willows have been made symbols of the forces that are against us our narrator has an epiphany about the mundane life that waits back in England. He laughs at the Swede, calling him a superstitious idolater. This is cut off by a strange cry of something approaching. I saw it through a veil that hung before my eyes. To me, it gave the strange impression of being as large as several animals grouped together like horses, two or three moving slowly. The Swede thought it was shaped and sized like a clump of willow bushes rounded at the top and moving all over upon its surface, coiling upon itself like smoke. You've got that coiling, spiralling again, that motif. Hmm. That bit where he's thinking about mundane life back in England, although, Christ, how the hell could you make a whole paragraph out of looking at a boot? Yeah, he has a, like, a real sort of vision of street life in London and looking in a shop or something like that. Yeah. Like his mind's trying to sort of take him away exactly, from where yeah. he is. And I think when you're in a strange foreign land that is strange to you and you're feeling like out of sorts, sometimes your mind does cast you back to familiar things. I've certainly experienced that. Yeah. Fleeing these horrors, the two men collide in the dark, banging their heads together. This loss of consciousness that results breaks the spell. <laughs> This is twice 
in this story, the narrator has been broken out of what seems to be a bout of madness. So we had him being knocked over by a gust of wind when he was looking at the huge creatures before, and now we've got him banging heads with the Swede and breaking out of it like that. It does seem to be a bit convenient that this is what breaks him out. I mean, I guess something is going to break you out of a bout of madness, whether it's time or external circumstances. But is this something that you've ever done in games or would ever consider doing in games? This reminds me of the old film cliche where somebody's getting hysterical and mm. somebody slaps them to bring them to their senses. The narrator and the Swede tumble on each other and he actually almost breaks his arm, I yeah. think, doesn't he? It's the intense pain that brings him back to rationality. Well, it's also a brief loss of consciousness, and when they come round, the spell is broken. Yeah. So, no, I don't think that's something I would normally do in a game. I can't really think it is, because that's about how you get out of the bout of madness, perhaps. Mm. But, I mean, is this a bout of madness? I'd argue it isn't. It's more about a threat that's about to subsume them, this is how they escape it. It's almost like the, the mm. threat is them being drawn in. It's almost like they're not really making a power roll to escape, but it's almost like some action that the players have taken or has been serendipitous event that's happened to them that's managed to sort of pull them to safety. It's a luck spend. Yeah, almost like a luck spend or something, which I can't really think how you would mechanically reflect that in the game it's not something narratively that i'd usually think to do i have to so admit let's just say that you go with the idea of this being an opposed power role you see these creatures they're trying to draw your mind into mm, this mm. you've been trying to avoid thinking about them but at this point they're manifesting and you can't help but get drawn into this horrible cosmic feedback loop you can make a power roll to break out of this maybe this is a push troll. Maybe they failed the first one. It's sort of, oh, yeah, can we find some way of pushing this if we try to flee and run away, but we could end up running somewhere far worse or falling into the river and drowning, giving them the sacrifices they want or something like that. And they succeed and you narrate the outcome as, oh, yeah, okay, but you bang your heads together, knock yourselves out briefly, and when you come round... I can kind of see that, but it's almost like it's not by their volition that mm. they escape this. It's not through their own intent. They are running away. Right. So there obviously is some volition. Hmm. I'd almost kind of looked at this almost like as a Three Stooges moment. It just seemed a very almost slapstick way of bringing them out of this state. I thought, well, that's awfully convenient and almost comedic. It's something I'd try to steer away from. Well, at least try to stay away from it in gaming. But there's that time when it does devolve into comedy and then I'll quite happily say, yeah, let the slapstick roll. But, but it wouldn't be my go-to reaction. Felt a little contrived, but I think it does bring home the point that if they're not thinking about it, it doesn't get them. It does kind of thematically work. So later, the two men return to their tent. We get quite a lot of them sleeping in their tent and mm. one of them will wake up and the other one's not there, which kind of brought to mind that scene that we see in the Blair Witch Project and we see it in the Wendigo, of that feeling of being with somebody at night in the dark in a tent and then waking up and they're not there is pretty yeah. disturbing. And also, this is something that we gloss over an awful lot in Call of Cthulhu, I think. Certainly, you know, it's something I struggle with sometimes in my game, which is the fact that characters get tired. You're on an investigation that the fate of the world is mm. at stake. Perhaps there's survival horror elements, or it's even just something as simple as the players are really caught up in whatever it is they're digging into. 
And investigators just never seem to sleep. I mean, they must just have pockets full of cocaine or amphetamines that they go around with that just keep them awake 24 hours a day. What Blackwood does here, which I think is something that we can and should draw upon for our games, is just enforce the idea that not only do characters get tired, but in times of great emotional stress and so on, sometimes that actually amplifies exhaustion, that you've been so worked up that sooner or later you've just got to crash. You mean regular people don't walk around with speed in their pockets? I thought this was fairly normal to get through the day. (laughs) Go wash it down with a gallon of coffee, it's fine. The keeper of the book frames a hard scene here, putting the two people asleep and the narrator's sleeping in his tent, but he's awoken up by the pattering sound that he heard before and the pressure on the tent and the feeling that he's surrounded. And what's more, his buddy, the Swede, is missing. Where's he gone? Well, he's not far away. He finds his friend entering the water. He's offering himself as a sacrifice. The narrator runs over and pulls him to safety. And as the Swede calms down, the strange noises around the island cease. He says, they found a victim in our place. That has echoes to me of that moment in the Dunwich Horror where it's the whipperills mm. gathered around the house, all this noise and cacophony, and then all of a sudden they've gone and then he just delivers that line. They didn't get him. Mm. Lovecraft wasn't averse to borrowing, as we've seen certain elements of Arthur Macon turn up in a few of his stories. And I think, yeah, that's probably the case here. And sure enough, walking down to the water, the companions do find a body tangled up there in the water in some willow branches. The Swede wants to give the man a proper burial, but the river sweeps it away before they get a chance. As the body swung around to the current, the face and the exposed chest turned full toward us and showed plainly how the skin and flesh were indented with small hollows, beautifully formed and exactly similar in shape and kind to the sand funnels that we had found all over the island. Their mark, I heard my companion mutter under his breath. Their awful mark. There's plenty of photos of that turning up on the internet these days of like holes in people's hands and feet. All that makeup for that phobia of little holes all too close together. Trypophobia. Sorry, what, Matt? You've not come across it? Oh, okay. There's a a trend going around that it started as makeup exercises where artists use their hands or their feet generally and cover them in this layer of presumably maybe like latex or whatever material Mm. and then they prod little holes in it so that it looks almost like the pores in the skin have opened up well there's debate over whether it's actually recognized as a genuine phobia or not Mm. that it's a fear of all these little holes grouped together that provide some kind of revulsion in a subject it's like some people get it by looking at honeycombs Yeah, I think I've heard of that. Personally, I actually find that it's kind of grotesque, but also compelling. Mm. It's like a car crash. You just can't take your eyes off it. It's absolutely disgusting. Yeah, it's it's makeup, but by God, it's impressive makeup and utterly revolting. Hmm. There are all sorts of variants of that out there with people doing stuff with Photoshop or taking pictures of... There's one variety of frog, if I remember correctly, that carries its embryos or its its young around on its back in these pits on its skin. And people love posting pictures of that on the internet to freak others out. I don't know how much it's exaggerated for comic effect, but I've certainly seen people posting on places like Reddit saying that they can't even look at the surface of a crumpet without freaking out. Oh, I just look at a crumpet and drool. 
But this isn't special effects. This is actual weird spiraled holes mm. in this fella in the water. Spirals again. So what do we make of this ending? I mean, does it work for you as a final kind of line, as an ending? It just ends. I think the ending is a bit of a cop-out. Blackwood has given these two men an easy out, that the whole thing was building up towards them needing to make a sacrifice to get off the island, and this horrible choice potentially that awaited them. Now, whether or not this was because of a shared psychotic delusion on their part, or whether they correctly understood what was required by these forces on the island they were still building towards one of them either having to sacrifice themselves or one of them having to sacrifice the other. I don't know, it feels like he flinched at the last moment and sort of said, oh yeah, well, there's this body, it washes up, everything's okay. I would have preferred something a bit darker. You felt it just finished rather abruptly, Matt? Yeah, I think it didn't have enough context or information to give it a decent payoff. What I probably would have done if I was the editor, apart from taking a chainsaw to large parts of the unnecessary dialogue and description here, would have been to say that this could have been a nice way to tie in that figure that gave them the sign of the cross earlier on and say, oh, we recognise him, and at least have it not Mm. just seemingly come out of the goddamn blue, which is what it does here. It's an unnamed peasant. It's a random Joe that just had no impact or no involvement in the story up until this point, and that's it. We're done. It is kind of curious, yeah. Very, Very abrupt, very out of nowhere, and very unfulfilling. It just felt to me like an easy out i mean i Mm. I kind of agree with what you both said it feels like we've had all this set up and then it is a bit of a cop out it feels like i'd rather it would have ended just before they found that maybe and it's just Mm. like we never know what happens or i think that would have been more satisfying this just feels a bit like they found another victim i mean Yeah, I don't know what that adds, really. Or alternatively, if the narrator hadn't caught the Swede in time, the Swede had gone into the river and swept away, and then all the forces on the island had stopped. Yeah, maybe. So, I mean, I guess to to kind of wrap this up, what do we make of the story overall? What was our impression of it? How to write a very taxing, very long, very verbose and in some cases, completely unnecessarily detailed description. If anything, it's a good example of how you can take what, at the core of it, actually probably was a fairly decent idea, but completely dilute it with far too much goddamn text. He overwrote this and maybe was paid by the word, because, boy, it shows. I'm pretty sure he wasn't for this. <laughs> it feels like it. <laughs> There's some good ideas in here, but it really just gets lost in the mountain of text. It could have been a hell of a lot more succinct, and I think it would have had a more memorable impact if it had been. I'm the other end of the scale. This is one of my favourite stories. I came to this one relatively late. I don't think I read it for the first time until about 20 years ago. I've often talked on the podcast about how I don't think I get scared very much in fiction. It's very, very rare for a piece of fiction to creep me out. But The Willows does. It doesn't keep me up at night and so on, but it is one of those rare bits of fiction that can actually disquiet me, give me the shivers, make my skin crawl a bit, because it is just so weird that I think it would have been very easy for Blackwood to go for the Lovecraft approach and at the end go, oh, it's aliens and these are their names and this is their description and so on, which would have just diffused the entire story. But here, 
it is this kind of building sense of wrongness of these linked events that seem to share so much, seem to share a common cause, the disparate attempts to explain it, the fears about what it may or may not represent, but fundamentally just this idea that it is something totally alien that they've stumbled across by being in the wrong place. They don't know what the rules are. They're guessing at it, probably getting stuff catastrophically wrong, and at the very least, their lives are on the line. That got to me. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're fair to Lovecraft there. This smacks to me of a Lovecraft ending. What Blackwood does here that Lovecraft doesn't is resist the temptation to name things. There's no Yogg-Sothoth in this, and there's no Mego. Sure. There are no named entities. There are, short of that brief vision of these things reaching up to the heavens and the things that may or may not be willow bushes or clumps of animals moving around, there aren't really any identifiable things to look at. It's just this sense of a, a place that is wrong. Hmm. I mean, I can remember reading this, I don't know, some years back and kind of struggling with it like you've said, Matt, it is, for the content of the story, it is surprisingly long. Mm. And I found it hard to keep my engagement with it. This time, I was traveling in a long car journey, and I had it on a talking book. So on YouTube, if you go onto YouTube, obviously, it's a very old story, it's out of copyright, and there are various readings on YouTube. The one that I found was read by Peter Bishop, it was about the second hit on YouTube. It's kind of got a sepia banner. And yeah, it's very well read. About two hours of reading comes out, just over two hours. Mm. But I found that given that I didn't have anything else to do, I'm sat in the car driving, I found that I really did get engaged with it. And the time just passed. I could just get immersed in the story. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I think it is, one could criticise it for being overwritten. But actually... In that situation, I was happy listening to it and it was fine. And then I went out the next day on a walk and just finished off the last half hour. So, yeah, I think there is some fiction, some writing that I struggle with as a reader that I find I digest better when I'm listening to it read to me, I have to say. Mm. That's partly in my fault as a reader. So I think, you know, if you are perhaps like me in, in that respect youtube is your friend in that respect i listened to that one after paul forwarded it to me and i found it completely just unmemorable there was very little engagement actually holding me to listening to it mm. but then i thought well if it was the text that might be one thing or it might be the reader i listened to the ian gordon reading of it as well on horror babble which i then found myself going well this is at regular speed let's knock it up to 1.5 no, it's still taking a while. Let's knock it up to 1.75. <laughs> and I ended up with him going at double speed just to get through it because it just, again, it, nothing really held me. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Thank you and good night. <laughs> because nothing improves the atmosphere of a story like reading it at double speed. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, let that be a lesson to us all, not to listen to the wind in the willows. Or just not go camping. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, actually, that's the real horror. I'm with you on that, Matt. Yeah, I'm not a fan myself. The good friends go camping. That's not going to happen. Hang on, hang on, hang on. We all agreed on something yes. we liked. <laughs> or in this case, we did not no, like. No, something we don't like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We've yet to find something we all like, but we can find something we all don't like. That's a step in the right direction, isn't it? We are united to negativity. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, stay indoors, close the windows, get a book out and dim the lights. And whatever you do, don't think about them. You know, them. Just don't. Yeah, don't think about them. No. Yeah, it's not good. Well, till next time, friends. It's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.